What's up, ma'am? Okay, we've been, uh, the last several weeks, we've been involved in a study of um, not just the book of Judges, but the period of the Judges. And as you saw on the screen a little earlier, I think there's still maybe four more lessons in this that have to do not necessarily with the book of Judges, but with the events uh, themselves. But tonight we're going to focus on uh, Judges 17 through 21. That's five long uh, chapters. Five chapters, not very long. Um, so we're going to kind of fly through them. I don't have any handouts, but we're going to go through some stuff on the screen. It's kind of a review of uh, what, what goes on in that last part. But first, I want to uh, tell you about uh, a conversation I recently had, probably not the first time I had that conversation with Brother Nick's Daniel uh, before he moved to Nashville. Nick's, as those of you who knew him well, uh, would agree, Nick's could occasionally wax very philosophical. And to talk to him a few minutes, you, you found yourself getting a little deeper and deeper in that well uh, of the subject that he was bringing up. And uh, he asked me on that occasion, uh, some event of the day or of that week had triggered him asking this question. I don't remember the event, but here's his question or, or something similar to it. Do you think that things are as bad here now as they were in the time of the judges? Um, and uh, I, I said, I don't know, Nix. I, I, I think that in order for somebody to answer that, they've got to be able to view it um, as God views it. And, of course, none of us can do that. I know there's some bad things that go on now, uh, but I, I see one difference uh, when we're reading of the... Um, incredibly challenging things that, that we read about in the book of Judges, especially these last few chapters. Uh, we're talking about God's people, God's very people. And what uh, Nix and I had been talking about the previous four or five minutes uh, did not involve the people of God, uh, insofar as we know at least. So that's a major difference. But here in, in the last of Judges, it, 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 it's really a difficult thing. Uh, there, there are really two events that have multiple parts, each of them, and they're totally unrelated. Uh, but there's some threads that run through these events that I want you to pay attention to. First of all is the um, presence of religious corruption to the nth degree. Second... There is the presence or the evidence of immoral living to the nth degree. Third, unlike the previous chapters in the book of Judges, there's no mention of foreign threats. It all has to do with the people of God. And each of these sections, chapters 17 and 18, and then chapters 19 through 21, are something akin to separate appendices, if you will, to the rest of the book. They're unrelated to each other. And I want to start first, though, before we launch into that, I, I want to start with uh, a very, very quick, uh, as much as of an overview, I guess, as can be uh, made of the uh, first 16 chapters. Okay. 
In the first 16 chapters of the book, here's what we find. Uh, I kind of narrowed it down to these five events or these five circumstances. There's, first of all, an incomplete conquest of the land. God's given them land. They don't conquer it as they're supposed to. There's disobedience and unfaithfulness everywhere. And here it's described in general terms, that is those 16 chapters, in general terms regarding Israel as the nation. There are repeated threats from the enemies of Israel. And there are somewhat flawed heroes, which we call judges, that arise in a cycle of deliverance from oppression. Peace is restored for a while. Jeremy had last week's class, he very clearly pointed out that Samson was one of those judges who was severely flawed. Yet, he rose to the occasion in some respects. Okay, now let's look at the last five chapters and see what's different here. Here we've got a sad betrayal of individual people and individual circumstances of fallen people that seem to have no hope whatsoever of redemption. There's very clear disobedience, there's unfaithfulness, there's egregious sins, and they are described in specific terms. In those earlier chapters, it simply said that the people sinned, they departed from God, they didn't do what they should. Here we've got some specific terms. These events are lifted from somewhere within the 300 um, um, years covered by all of the book of Judges, those 16 chapters especially. Uh, So remember that that they're spread throughout here. It's not like, if you look at those first 16 chapters, it's like judge, 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 and they're in succession in which they served. But somewhere in this period of time are the events we read in these last uh, five chapters. Uh, One writer says that, that it probably was during some of the times of peace. You know, they had some uh, periods of several years, in some cases, of peace, uh, because there's no mention of the oppression in these uh, oppression from outside forces. It's not just civil disorder. And we've seen those verses, uh, Judges 17, 6 and 21, 25, uh, a number of times these lessons. Most of our uh, instructors have mentioned those verses. Uh, um, Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, it's civil disorder, but it's also uh, far more than it. It's what I would call religious disorder. Now, I, I doubt very seriously if there's anybody listening um, that has not, at least uh, to some degree, studied these uh, verses before. But after I prepared this lesson, uh, I didn't initially have this note, but uh, I, I sat down with a scratch piece of paper and I thought, I'm going to see how many egregious sins I can remember from reading this and studying this. And here's what I came up with, and maybe you uh, uh, can find something that I I missed. Uh, uh, I said that the uh, main sin, uh, the most alarming, was idolatry. Uh, And the reason I said it was most alarming, it was very clear that when Moses passed the torch to Joshua, and when Joshua told the people uh, that he he was going to uh, die, uh, that uh, the, the principal thing I believe that was told to people is uh, don't get into this idolatry business. Now, you could argue that some other things were important as well, but the main sin I see here is idolatry, and everything else kind of springs from that. I also see armed robbery. I see sexual assault and at least attempted sodomy. I see murder. I see lying or deception. I see human trafficking. I see drunkenness. And I see harlotry in these two principal events. Okay, now let's start them. And as I read this a week or ten days or longer ago, I tried to visualize this to 
separate the last of these events, the double event, if you will, from the first. And so I kind of did this in my mind's eye as something akin to a a play that's unfolding before us. I don't mean to be flippant about that, but I wanted to try to, to, to view it in the context of just the event itself. And so I said, well, okay, here's the first event, and I'm going to call it uh, Micah's House of Gods. Here's what happens. A series of events. You can read the, the whole section if you want to, but I've kind of gone in there and i pulled out the main events. There's a lot of uh, things related to this, but these are main events. Micah steals from his wealthy mother. And she, when she finds out this, he, he, he fesses up to her. She says, well, that's not any problem. I'll make a carved image, and I'll give it to you. So she has an image made. Micah has this shrine made for him, and he adds to it a priestly ephod and household idols. And then Micah consecrates his own son as his personal priest. Neither the son uh, nor his father, Micah, are descendants from the house of Aaron, which, of course, the priests come from. And there's no concept of a personal priest anywhere in the law. Of course, idols are condemned under the law as well. But that does not seem to matter at all to Micah. Still today, uh, folks mix true worship elements with their own preferences and their own practices without giving any thought, it seems, to whether or not they're acceptable to God. Now, they do it in different ways today uh, than in Micah's time, but it is still done today. All right, this goes on. Micah then hires a freelancing, wandering, aimlessly Levite as a personal priest. Sort of like, oh, I see an upgrade. My son, uh... I'll upgrade. I'll get this Levite who seems to be wandering around with nothing to do as a personal priest. And this Levite agrees to do that. He becomes like a son to Michael, and he seems to be content. Consistent with his homegrown cult features, Micah adopts an abysmal theology. The last verse of chapter 17, he says, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. Well, that's a horrible waste of, of, of wealth and intelligence and even creativity. He manufactures a make-believe God as really a cover-up for his own greed and arrogance. He thinks that, well, since I've got this priest, I'm going to be better off than I was before. He has a a desire uh, to do that, apparently. And you know what? Uh, There are events today. We don't see them real often, but we do see them uh, where... um, Folks in the religious world want to turn service to God into a means of personal wealth. Google prosperity gospel or gospel of success sometime. And uh, I think you will learn, as I learned, that those that, there are some people who assert that faith um, or a demonstration of faith, as they might define it, uh, by supporting some kind of human enterprise will further enhance their personal well-being. It might be even rewarded with more wealth, sometimes more health or better health, and with happiness. Um, The people of Micah's time, Micah himself, um, thought that God's favor uh, would come about because of the things that he's done. But friends, um, 
God's favor comes from obedience and um, not trying to exempt ourselves from ordinary um, morality circumstances. Let's go on. The story continues with Micah. Now here's here's where the the scene changes a little bit. Let's uh, go back a little bit. It's not on your screen, but go back a little bit. In the first chapter of Judges, I believe it's uh, verse 34 of chapter 1, it says uh, that the tribe of Dan was unable or were unable to conquer their territory because they just basically got a little, I'll call it chicken. Uh, They didn't defeat their enemies in their allotted land and the those people forced them out of that allotted land to live in the mountains. Well, some time has passed, and they've decided that living in the mountains just doesn't work, and they're in seek of a new place to be. Um, the Amorites have run them out, so they say, we've got to find a more suitable place. So they send out uh, spies to uh, search the land and find a better place for them to be. And these five Danite spies stumble across Micah's house, and they also stumble across the young Levite and have more of an encounter with him than they do with uh, Micah. They don't have any doubts about the Levite's legitimacy. Uh, in fact, they say, well, you're a priest. And so they consult the priest for their own interest. They want to find out if what they're doing is, is a good thing. And so they twist his arm a little bit, and they get favorable advice. And after this favorable advice, they depart to scout the city of Laish. And when they get there, they find it quiet and secure. And the Danite spies report back to their superiors that this city can be taken. Okay, so they say, let's go take that city. The Danite raiders are on their way to Ladish, and they're near Micah's house. And the five spies tell everybody else, oh, by the way, there's a a house here. Uh, And in the house is an ephod, and there's some household idols, and there's a carved image and a molten image. That's 1814, and that kind of gets everybody's attention, and they decide they want to see about that. So the Danites go to Micah's house, and they plunder, that is, steal these items without any pushback uh, from the Levite. They steal them from Micah. In fact, the Levite priest, hearing the jingle of financial reward, gathers the items up and joins the Danites. He accepted the Danites' offer because of the greater prestige it was to offer him. Is it any um, surprise to any of us that in today's world there are people selling false spiritual services to the highest bidder? Um, in the time of uh, Micah, in the time of Judges, this is just one debased event or circumstance after other debased events or circumstances. Uh, but now it's um, it's still present. This one uh, simply lowers the bar earlier. I remember, and I know I've told people this before, probably in this class, but I remember a circumstance from when I was practicing public accounting from about, it was, it was at least 40 years ago, when uh, our firm, the firm with which I worked, had a client that was a denominational church. We did quite a bit of work for them, just routine stuff, nothing uh, more than routine. And they had a minister a very likable young man. He was a little older than me, a very likable young man. And he resigned that position and accepted the responsibility to be the pulpit minister of another denomination. And he told us when we were saying, well, thanks for all the help you've given us, et cetera, et cetera. You know why he told us he was doing that? Because what? 
It offered better compensation and a great retirement plan. Uh, and that was the reason he left from a denomination to another denomination, and they had no, hardly any common uh, bonds at all. Uh, I was appalled by that some 40 years ago, but here's, it's exactly what happened in the time of Dan. This Levite priest says, oh yeah, I'll go with you guys because you're offering me more money. Okay, the circumstance gets a little more complicated now. Micah learns shortly that uh, this disloyal Levite has beat feet, and along with him uh, go his treasured items. So Micah and his friends form what amounts to a posse, get some friends together. They pursue the Danites, and they shortly overtake the Danites. Uh, somewhat perplexed at best, the Danites turn around and say, well, Micah, what's, what's, what's bother you? The scripture says, what ails you? What's going on? What ails you? When Micah confronts them, um, the Danites threaten Michael. You don't want to go there or something to that effect. Micah retreats. That's the last we hear from Micah. And the Danites continue to laish. The confrontation between Micah and the Danites it's very short-lived. It sort of ends before it begins. And they go on about their way with all of Michael's goods. All right. When they get to Laish, the Danites, plus the Levites with them, they've got these worship items. They annihilate the defenseless citizens of, of um, Laish, and they burn the city to the ground. And then shortly after that, they rebuild the city for their homeland, their residence. They rename the city Dan and 1830s, it says that the Danites set up for themselves the carved image and they appoint a non-Levite as a priest, which I presume they thought would be an upgrade from the Levite that's made the trip with them. Many years later, Jeroboam I established idolatrous shrines in the city of Dan and a couple of other places too. That's in 1 Kings 12, I believe. And I have to think uh, that uh, the background of the city of Dan, uh, Jeroboam knew something about that, so he chose that as probably a good place to do his dirty deeds. Now, that ends that sad event. And later, if you've got some questions or comments on that, we'll get to that later. But I want to jump quickly into this other event that has no relationship or bearing to the first one. They're unrelated, but again, it's at this period of time. This one, I'm going to call the Levite and his concubine and civil war. I'm again looking at this as, a, as it unfolds as if it were a play that uh, uh, I'm witnessing. Um, I got to thinking uh, about all of these events. I'm going to get off on a tangent a little bit. I got to thinking about all this the other day uh, when I saw something. I, I was doing something. I saw something that reminded me of a movie from long ago, Young Frankenstein. Uh, Young Frankenstein was a parody, or is a parody, of the Mary Shelley novel on Frankenstein. And how can you parody something that's so dark and ugly as the Frankenstein monster? But the parody was so laughable uh, that, that you were entertained by it, uh, and you found it so unbelievable. Well, I'm not suggesting that these events in the book of Judges are laughable, but I am suggesting they're, they're such an incredible parody uh, that, that you just can't believe that. And this one unfolds with greater alarm and disgust than the first one, which was bad enough. It's the most appalling event, in my opinion, 
in Israel's long slide into depravity, into constant worship of idols and anarchy against God. It's the saddest section in the entire Bible, certainly the saddest section in the Old Testament. The most extreme form of depravity occurs and the religious authorities are complicit. And here's the way it starts. There's another Levite, not the one we just talked about, but another Levite, he acquires a concubine. Now that was not an unusual thing. Remember even Abraham had a concubine. And uh, uh, Jacob in Genesis 30, I believe, had two concubines. So it was a common thing uh, for uh, men to have a concubine. But this concubine becomes a harlot. She harlots against him, and she returns to her father's house some distance away in the city of Bethlehem. Some four months later, the Levite goes to retrieve her, and his tone seems to be apologetic and forgiving. The Levite and the concubine's father have a cordial meeting and relationship, and that evolves into a five-day drinking binge. And at the end of the fifth day, or toward the end of the fifth day, the Levite foolishly departs uh, from Benjamin on his journey with the concubine and his servant uh, on the way back home. I say foolishly departs because uh, we all know that traveling at night or late in the day in that period of time uh, would be an unwise thing. And so as they journey along, they decide they've got to find shelter for the evening after some discussion uh, they decide they're going to stay in this city called Gibeah and at the time uh, most of those cities uh, had something akin to a town square I'll call it uh, where if a stranger was traveling they could come to the town square and somebody would offer to put them up for the night uh, which seemed to be a very uh, kind and humane thing to do but they don't have any luck when they first get there time passes and it's getting pretty late. And then all of a sudden, this old man returns from his work. He's been in the fields. He returns to his work, and he offers to put them up uh, for the night. And he does that. He takes them to his home. Hardly before the evening starts, some men of the city surround this house, and they demand that the man, the old man, turn over the Levite stranger so that they can sodomize him. The scriptures are very clear. That's what their intent was. Verse 22 of chapter 19 says these are perverted and they've got some perverted ideas. And this old man's idea of protecting these travelers uh, is a stomach turning at best, probably worse. So the men of the city say, turn over the Levite. We want to sodomize him. To spare him, the old man offers his virgin daughter plus the concubine. You want to have fun tonight with this, this man? I got something better for you to do. Here's my virgin daughter, and here's this man's concubine. You can have them divided up. You know, it, it divides a lot better. Two divides better than one. That seems to be what he's saying. And to me, the, uh, I don't know if uh, uh, when, when uh, through inspiration these verses or these chapters were penned or not, if, if the writer or God as the inspirer of the writer had an idea to remind us of the uh, terrible events that unfolded years ago in Sodom and Gomorrah. But it seems to me like the depravity that exists in this city is right up there with Sodom and Gomorrah, and we all remember uh, what happens there. So the old man 
uh, says, I'm going to give you my daughter and the concubine. However, it gets a little odd here because the old man seems to be taken out of the picture. And the Levite, thinking that perhaps I, I don't want my concubine to go out there. I don't know what he's thinking. Uh, but his idea doesn't seem to be very good. He chooses self-preservation. And, and uh, he, in effect, throws his concubine out uh, in order, I guess, to save himself. Maybe they don't like this deal that the old man is proposing. His virgin daughter plus my concubine instead of me. But I tell you what, I don't want to go out there. But look at my concubine. Let's at least start with her. Have at her. You can go with her. So he, in effect, kicks her out of the house. For the entire night, she's raped and she's abused. And at daybreak, the weak concubine returns to the house's doorstep and there she collapses. The verses in uh, this chapter do not tell us whether she collapsed and died or whether she simply collapsed. Uh, And we're left to speculate on that. But the story goes on. This would be act two of this uh, series of events. A night of rest. This uh, old man apparently, and certainly the Levite has, and he leaves the house to resume his journey and he sees his fallen concubine lying at the door. And he chooses, the scripture very clearly says, to give her no aid. Now, uh, is she, do we presume she was already dead so he didn't need to give her any aid? Uh, the mistreatment of the night before has killed her. Well, we don't know. The text is at, at very best ambiguous. But at least he gives her no aid. And then he mounts her on his donkey. He goes on his journey heading home. And when he gets home, he dismisses and disperses her remains to the twelve tribes, one piece each tribe. I tried to imagine this, and I don't want to be gruesome, but I want us to understand how bad this, this worked, how bad this looked. Cut the foot off, cut the leg off at the knee, cut it off at the hip. That's three, six, there's eight, there's ten, the torso and the head, that's twelve pieces. And he scatters the 12 pieces in all of the tribes. Uh, and I don't know how he decided who was getting what, but I don't think it matters. It's, it's gruesome anyhow. Okay, so what does that do? Well, it kind of sets the people off. It's a gross act, and it becomes a call to arms against Benjamin. This city in which this occurs, Gibeah, is a Benjamite city. And the rest of Israel says... We can't have that. We're, 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 they, they, in effect, make that call to assemble everybody in kind of a war council, but the Benjamites aren't invited to that war council. They talk to the Levite about this, and I think at the very best, he gives false and incomplete information to the assembled tribes, and war against Benjamin is declared. The first thing they do is ask for the perverted men of Gibeah, but their request is refused by the Benjamites. It doesn't say anything about it in the text, but if you read through the lines here, it seems that they are appalled by the cruelty that's been subjected to to this uh, concubine, that is, the rape and the murder. They're apparently blaming the murder on the citizens of Gibeah, these perverted men, uh, when it's at least possible that the dismembering uh, was what, what killed her. But they don't blame the Levite at all, and I think part of that uh, reason for that is I think he throws them a curve. He deceives them some and, and he lies to them. 
Um, they're going to go after the Benjamites because the Benjamites will not turn over these perverted men uh, to them. All right? So, here we go. We got war. We got the Benjamite tribe, Benjamin tribe, versus the whole tribe, uh, the remaining 11 tribes of Israel. Uh, there's um, several verses there, probably 15, 18, 20 verses there about the conflict they have and some goings on in the conflict. You've read that, of course, but he, here's really what happens. They have some initial setbacks through the Israelites. The Benjamites seem to be winning despite the fact that they don't have superior numbers. But uh, after uh, some appealing to God, uh, they're able to set a trap for the Benjamites, and the Benjamites are overtaken in that trap. Uh, it involves some trickery. And only 600 Benjamite men survived the route. That's verse 47 of chapter 20. 600 Benjamite men survived that route. Numbers 26 tells us that there were 45,600 people in the tribe of Benjamin. And I'm not absolutely sure whether that was 45,600 men, not counting the women and children, or if that was the total. But if it's, even if it's the total, even if it's the total, that gets the population of the Benjamite tribe down to about one and a third percent of what they were. After they destroy all these people, except for these 600 who escape, the Israelites destroy every Benjamite city, men and beasts, all who were found, and all means no women survived that annihilation. This is all done by the non-Benjamite tribes of Israel. They are hardly any different from the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, all those other warring tribes that they were supposed to overcome. They, in effect, have lived with them for these 300 years, or the bulk of these 300 years, not pushing them out of the land as God told them to do, but living with them, and it's like they sort of absorbed the evil of those evil people themselves, and they're acting just like the people that they're supposed to uh, destroy. They become as uh, the others were. But you know what? There's more to the tragedy of this story. It goes on. All of a sudden, without any explanation in the text, the Benjamites, I'm sorry, the Israelites, become remorseful. Oh, gee, what have we done? And they choose, so that the Benjamite tribe can survive, they choose to provide women for their survival. The survival, of course, being the 600 men. And so uh, they got this little problem there because, you see, what they've done earlier is they made two oaths. One was they're going to punish any Israelite city who didn't come to the war council and didn't make war with the Benjamites. And secondly, they made an oath during that war council, they were so mad, so aggravated, so disgusted with what had happened with these perverted men that they pledged, as they're going to destroy the Benjamites, they're not, they're going, to, they're not going to give their daughters as wives for any Benjamite survivor. We're just not going to do it. Okay, 600 survivors. We're remorseful. What are we going to do? And for sure, for sure, let's don't break that pledge Let's don't give them some of our own daughters. So what do they do? Well, they're going to assuage their grief, their remorse, and solve this conundrum. 
They know that the citizens of this city called Jabesh Gilead didn't come to the war council, apparently because some feast is going on. And so they lash out at the negligent citizens of this Israelite city and they kill everyone except 400 virgins. They make peace with the 600 Benjamites who survived and the 400 virgins then are given to them. However, they did the math. 400 is less than 600 and the shortfall is troubling them. The numbers are a little out of balance. It says in the text, uh, chapter 21, verse 11, that they utterly destroyed that city. Utterly destroyed. If you read back in the book of Judges, you're going to find that phrase, that two-word phrase, utterly destroyed a number of times. That's what they were supposed to be doing to the people uh, that were the inhabitants of the promised land when they went in there. Uh, but they didn't do it. They have some questionable motives and some certainly questionable uh, actions. And now they got this problem 600 is greater than 400. So what do they do? So we got to fill that void. And they say, you know what? We made that oath. But the Israelites then say, we're not going to break that oath. Oh God, we're not going to break that oath. So they get these 600 Benjamites to raid this city and capture 200 women. 200 being the shortage, of course. As, they, as this city is celebrating this feast, and so these Benjamites then capture the 600 young women. And so now... We've got 400 plus 200, 600 Benjamite men have 600 wives, and they return to build their city, cities. So two despicable compound events, if you will, of um, really, really bad behavior, gross immorality, and egregious sins of God's own people. Then you ask yourself, yeah, yeah, I, I understand why the first 16 chapters of Judges are there. They were supposed to conquer the land, and they didn't, and that kind of started them on the, the road that would lead to, lead to the divided kingdom and even beyond. They were disobedient. And here's how it all had its beginning. Times when they entered the promised land. Remember, remember how excited they were when Joshua made that speech to get them started? It's like, it's like there's an XY graph, you know, and, and, and the, the horizontal graph, that, that's, a, that's time. Here's when Joshua made his speech, and time progresses. Here's the Y graph, and relationship with God, that's like here, and it deteriorates as we go up. So as the time goes up, you can see what the graph is doing. Their relationship with God is nosediving, and their moral condition is nosediving, and pretty soon both of the, that X, Y graph has two flat lines laying on top of one another. It, it couldn't, as time goes on, it couldn't get any worse. They couldn't get any further from God, and they couldn't be more sinful. Uh, and how despicable is that? Well, okay, I understand why all of that is spelled out in the book of Judges, but why go in there and, and give us these last five chapters and say, this is really how bad they were. I know how bad they were. It says that every time there's a judge, it says what the people did. Okay, I have to think then, there's some kind of lesson in there for me. What are those lessons? Randy, help me out up there. Roll that baby. Okay. All right. I see four or five lessons in this. There's the first one. Without obedient and faithful leaders, God's people 
of that day, perhaps God's people of this day, chart their own religious paths, even when those paths are filled with hazardous obstacles like evil desires and evil devices. You know what, folks? If we ever think that we can depend totally, individually, that we can depend totally on my inherent moral compass, absent anything else, just my moral compass, if I can depend upon it to keep me in line with what God expects, um, without any supervision at all, without the supervision of the Scriptures, without the supervision of more godly and experienced men and women, uh, then I'm probably uh, barking up a, a tree with no squirrel in it. And so I ask myself, is this example here a foundation perhaps of the support for the spiritual authority that the New Testament assigns to church elders? Is there a reason church elders are charged with the responsibility for our spiritual integrity as well as their own. Is there a reason to trust the sound judgment of faithful elders? If I launch out on my own, I don't think I'm going to go as far as Micah did. I don't think I'm going to go as far as the Levite did. I'm not going to become one of the perverted men of the city. I'm not going to cut somebody into pieces. Uh, but my moral standards might lead me down a path uh, that I don't want to go. In today's world, uh, that can happen. Uh, but there's another lesson I would learn here. We must defend those who face injustice, especially the vulnerable and the damaged who are defenseless. Uh, our world has a lot of people that are powerless and a lot of people who are abused and when we have an opportunity to do something about that uh, we need to rise to the occasion we don't need to send somebody else out to be abused further Uh, we need to uh, act on that Um, they didn't do it in the time of the judges but we're better than that another lesson when we follow our paths rather than the New Testament paths, to some degree we're marching in lockstep with the Israelites of Judges. Friends, we're not left to speculate on what is and what is not moral purity. The New Testament books spell that out. The Gospels, the message of Jesus, the book of history, Acts, all of the New Testament letters and even the book of Revelation, you can find them filled with guidance on what makes a person morally in compliance with God. Now, I temper all of that by saying sometimes uninformed or non-caring church members follow men or follow women sometimes instead of the teachings or instead of the guidance of the New Testament. Friends, the Israelites of that day just basically threw the book of law and all that Moses had taught them and all that Joshua had taught them 
They pitched it in the garbage can and they launched out on their own and every man did what was right in his own eyes. I believe, and I've said this before, I emphatically believe that we should respect, trust, and support the church elders. Wherever our congregational home is, we've got to support the church elders. Nonetheless, nonetheless, we, that's me and that's you, are responsible for our own actions and our own moral choices and our own quality of worship to Almighty God. Sometimes well-meaning or not well-meaning folks lay aside the Bible's guidance and they choose to follow their own wisdom choices, whatever they are. I think we all know what apostasy is. It's a Refusing to follow the tenets uh, of one's profession, chosen profession. What's uh, judges uh, teaching us about this? Well, it's teaching it's a vicious cycle. Apostasy leads to moral decline, moral decline, decadence of moral decline itself feeds apostasy. And remember this vicious circle that all these people are going in? Disobedience, call for relief. They get some relief from one of the judges and they do it back again. It's the same thing that's illustrated in those first 16 chapters as we see here in the last five chapters. The moral decline accelerates the disobedience, the unfaithfulness. Uh, Sometimes that's overlooked because challenging moral depravity might offend someone. Moral decay generates or leads to spiritual weakness. Here's the conclusion of what I see in Judges. Let it never be said of the church of today, the Bible became irrelevant, everyone did as they wished. And I think my conversation with Nix those weeks ago told me that Nix, through the wisdom of his 90 years or so, said that I I see a little bit of that. There's a lot of moral decadence in the world. And I, the last four days, I've been look, carefully looking at newspapers that I subscribe to electronically and trying to find examples of moral decadence. And I found too many that I wanted to, uh, uh, that, that too many to bring. Many in today's religious world have rejected the integrity of the Bible, the authority of the Bible, just like the Israelites rejected and disobeyed God's laws and its principles. Too many people claim belief in God. I believe in God. I believe in God. I believe in God. I worship God. I worship God. I go to church. But they fall way short of moral excellence and spiritual obedience. And let's don't let that happen to us. Because it's up to me to make sure it doesn't happen to me. And it's up to you. And thanks be to God that we have some church elders that are very solid and they can help us stay on the path that we need to be on. That's all I've got unless you've got questions. Did I hear a bell? Did I just hear one? Did I get through before the second bell? That's all I've got unless you've got a question. Um, Anybody? Dale. Dale reminds me it's Dr. Frankenstein, not Frankenstein. Thank you, Dale. Okay. It's like putting the frog in the water, isn't it? And yeah, the, the water's fine, and then you turn the heat up. Yeah. It's not subtle. Yeah. That's right. 
Dwight closes us with saying humanism is behind it all. And I, I would have to say, yep, yeah, yeah. that, that that's, that's the underlying foundation of it. Okay. Thank you for your attention. I appreciate it very, very much.